The Energy Gang is brought to you by Renasola, a tier one solar cell and module manufacturer with a decade of experience in the clean tech industry. Renasola is your complete procurement provider of clean energy solutions. The company is now offering a bundled solution for residential installers looking to reduce procurement costs and drive down the cost of projects. To find your local representative, go over to renasola.us or give them a call at 415-570-2647. For the week of May 7th, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Welcome to the show. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media, usually in Washington, D.C., but coming to you this week from Fort Myers, Florida. Welcome to the show. Tesla's big storage announcement last week had everyone hyped up about batteries. But is the market ready for them? We'll talk about what needs to happen on a regulatory level to take distributed storage beyond the hype here in the U.S. Then we'll look more specifically at Tesla's new battery, the costs, the applications, and the partnerships, and we'll end with a discussion of fracking wastewater. Can it become a resource for producing energy rather than just an expensive byproduct? That is all coming up, but first let me say hello to my co-hosts, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. Catherine is a partner with 38 North Solutions based in Washington, D.C. She is our resident policy expert and baseball expert. Catherine, how are you? I'm doing great. You're missing some beautiful weather up here in the nation's capital. Well, I'm in Florida, so the weather is always beautiful. The Sunshine State, but I don't see a solar rooftop anywhere. <laughs> and that is Jigger Shah. He is the president of Generate Capital, based in New York City. He's our business expert and our craft cocktails expert. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm in San Francisco and um, loving it. Oh, you're in San Francisco this week. Uh, yep. That is the ground zero for craft cocktails. I'll expect to see some posted on your Facebook feed. <laughs> yes, yeah, soon. Well, like I said, I'm in Florida at the moment, so there will definitely be some cocktails by the beach at some point this weekend. I'm, I'm not sure what kind of specialty drinks are unique to Florida. I guess I'll have to do some exploring. And speaking of which, I feel like our opening banter is constantly alcohol and sport dominant. So <laughs> I suppose people know how we sp spend our free time. Speaking of free time, the beach, water, our guest is a recreational surfer. A big wave surfer, actually. She's also an attorney at Keys, Fox, and Weedman, focused on renewable energy law, and she represents the Interstate Renewable Energy Council. Uh, it is Sky Stanfield. Sky joins us from Atlanta, Georgia, today, where she's speaking at the Solar Power Southeast Conference. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here while traveling. Thanks. I'm happy to be joining you all. So, speaking of the Southeast, I know you're going to be speaking on the regulatory environment tomorrow. From your legal perch, are you as bullish on the southeast solar market as, as we are? Absolutely. And that's why I'm excited to be out here. I think that, uh, you know, if anywhere in the country, we, there's so much potential here right now. And, and the conversation is just really getting started. And I expect that we're going to see the ball get moving really fast. But we got to deal with a lot of regulatory hurdles first. So um, that's why we're out here having that conversation. Certainly in Florida here, the actual sunshine state where I'm currently located. Where <laughs> or as we call it, the wasted sunshine state. That's right. I haven't heard that, but apropos. So we're going to chat with Sky today about a new report on laying the regulatory framework for distributed storage, which she recently wrote for IREC. But first, I want to chat about a very important breaking story from yesterday, a new bill introduced by independent Maine Senator Angus King, a man who has deep experience in the energy industry 
And the bill is called the Free Market Energy Act of 2015. It has uh, very positive implications for storage and other forms of distributed generation. Catherine, I want to turn to you on this because it's very relevant to the conversation today. Give us a sense for what this bill does. You're our PERPA expert. It has a lot to do with using PERPA for distributed generation. Oh, you! I don't know that I'm a PERPA expert, but um, I'll tell you a little bit about this bill. And as you as you sort of set it up, Senator King is an independent from Maine. He was a gov- He was the governor of the state. He has a really, really deep understanding of technologies and the cycle of innovation development. He ran a commercial and an industrial energy efficiency company. He's done hydropower, biomass, et cetera. He sits on the Energy and Natural Resources Committee in the Senate, which is the Committee of Jurisdiction for Energy Policy. So it's not for tax policy, it's not for appropriations, but it's for energy policy. And he has been wanting to do something really new and different, and that's what this is. To put it a little bit more in context, though, there is a lot going on right now to try to put together an energy bill, and a lot of people are staking out different sort of turf areas. Last week, they marked up 22 energy efficiency bills, so there's a lot of noise out there. This one, however, feels a little different because it is um, it, it comes at it not necessarily differently because PURPA has been amended many times before in energy legislation, but really where it's taking us is very different. Um, It's called um, the uh, Free Market Energy Act of 2015. This is all about individual energy independence to encourage innovation in cutting-edge technologies, create jobs, and bolster national security. And right there, all of those words that he uses in his press release, none of them talk about climate change. None of them talk about the environment. It's all about let's make sure that we incentivize distribution resources to drive down costs and allow us to be more energy independent from an individ- very individualized basis. So basically, it just requires states to create a robust regulatory framework and to set um, dynamic rates for valuing distributed generation, correct? Yeah, well, there are a couple things it does. One is it amends the Federal Power Act, which is actually kind of hard to amend, and I'm not sure how far that piece is going to go. But what it does is it creates a definition for distributed energy resource, which is really important to understand what is included in that. And it does include distributed fossil, but it includes renewables, fuel cells, CHP, storage, demand response, efficiency, microgrids, or any combination of those. So first you have to set up what's the definition of distributed energy resources, which he does. That's a Federal Power Act issue. PURPA... The Public Utility Regulatory Policies Act, um, there's a section called 111D, not to be confused with EPA, the Clean Air Act, basically outlines what states should be considering. And it doesn't force them. It says shall consider. And this has been, PURPA has been amended in EPACT and EISA and all these other energy policies where they'll, they'll, you know, Congress will say, look, there are all these new technologies and new applications. You all need to consider them when you're doing your planning. And so that's what he does is he amends this this um, section of PURPA 111D to try to say we need to have um, a right to neutrality of interconnection. We need to have just and reasonable rates for distributed generation in an unbundled way. We need to make sure that there's a competitive process and, and that there is a designation considered for a smart grid coordinator or distribution system operator in every state. So what states are then required to do is to consider, and that might mean having hearings, opening dockets, but it really does mean they need to go through a process. It doesn't mean they have to end up in a particular place, but it means that they need to start a process. And that's what's really interesting about this. You know, a few months back, we were chatting about a hearing on Capitol Hill 
where experts came and talked about the rise of DG and regulatory concerns and utility business models. And I asked you, is this just kind of fascination among lawmakers? And I had no idea that it would actually turn into something tangible in terms of legislation. Yeah. So remember, this is only the first step. He's, he's introducing this in Senate Energy. Um, and then, first of all, they got to make the sausage in Senate Energy. But then the House side is doing the same thing. And in fact, the House is moving faster than the Senate on this. And actually... Thing that I thing I have found out this week is that the House is doing something not completely dissimilar. Now it's coming at it from a slightly different angle, but they're also looking at PARPA and what can they do to help. You know, they, maybe they're not thinking about so much solar, but they're thinking about distributed generation in a way that you know, energy independence, resilience, that kind of thing. I actually think something is going to get through this year that can go to the president's desk that has something for distributed energy in it, and I'm fascinated to see what it ends up being. Yeah, so we won't get ahead of ourselves. There's a long way to go here. Go ahead, Jigger. So, Catherine, I just want to make sure that you wouldn't call this a manifesto, though. It is not a manifesto. <laughs> no, it's not. In fact, these are like really practical solutions. And I think what's interesting is that these solutions are in large part reflected in all this work that Sky has done for IREC. And I'm dying to hear to get her into this conversation because I think a lot of what she talks about is addressed in this bill. Indeed. So let's move more specifically into the topic at hand and into Sky's area of expertise. So, so as lawmakers consider language like this on strong interconnection policies for distributed generation and storage on a federal level. Certainly, advocates have been working on this tirelessly uh, from a policy and a legal perspective for many, many years. One of the reasons why we have such robust state markets. Um, What are some of the tenants that you'd consider mandatory? I think the where and where this bill goes is heading in exactly the right direction, which is we need to start reconsidering the way we treat distributed energy resources as sort of one-off installations that need to be integrated into the grid as in a way uh, as we need to respond to them and start shifting the conversation in towards a more proactive integration of the resources. And I think this bill and, and the conversations we're seeing in a couple of the states are starting to move us in that direction. If we want to take advantage of all of the technical potential of the number of different DERs that are included in this bill, it needs to be done in a proactive system planning way instead of on a one-by-one basis, which is really how most utilities are acting and responding to DER proposals. That's how they're planning or not planning for distributed generation solar, but that's also how they're treating a lot of other types of DERs. And so I think where this conversation really needs to go across the country is shifting, moving towards more like what we do at the transmission level, where we we look ahead at what the needs are and make a plan for how we're going to integrate them, and, and but do that at the distribution level as well as at the transmission level. And, and I think that what we're seeing in New York and the REV process in Hawaii, California, and Massachusetts is a start there. And I think this bill also kind of pushes that conversation forward. Whether it gets passed or not, it kind of puts it on everybody's radar. Indeed. So there are a number of different ways that regulators and utilities are considering storage. Let's go into the storage piece more specifically, because that's why we wanted to have this conversation. There are a number of different ways to do this. You have California, which has just set a mandate. You have New York, which is considering storage as part of this broader planning process. You have Hawaii and Massachusetts that's asking utilities to 
it's some, somewhere in the middle, right? It's asking utilities to um, consider developing their own plans. Help me understand the different ways that storage is getting integrated on a state level in some of those leading markets. Yeah, so the, it, it's kind of interesting to look at the beginning of you know energy storage regulation because it everybody everybody's doing it slightly differently and approaching it in different ways. California clearly is the is the the at the forefront here because they have the energy storage mandate and they also have an incentive program, um, the SCHIP program that applies to to energy storage. Um, but other states are doing it differently. I think the 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 most holistic approach is what you're seeing in, in New York, Massachusetts, Hawaii, California, which is to start looking at the distribution system planning process. Um, but at, at least eight states have regulatory proceedings and or other stakeholder working groups that are actively addressing energy storage. Um, and they're doing it in a variety of different ways. They're holding workshops. They're talking about things. There, A lot of states are starting just some preliminary um, sort of test case um, deployment, channeling some funds towards seeing how storage can be deployed. Um, and But one thing I want to highlight about what I think is un- unique to some extent and, and probably the most challenging thing about looking at the regulatory landscape for distributed energy storage or energy storage generally is that it's not like one, there's just one thing you need to do for storage. Almost all of the most important elements to creating a, a healthy market for storage lie in other proceedings. For example, in rates proceedings, are there time of use rates? How are demand charges set up? Are there, is there a market for ancillary services where energy storage providers can provide some of the technical services to the grid? Um, those are proceedings that happen in a much bigger context. And similarly, interconnection proceedings, while there's specific questions that we need to answer, about storage, they fit within a broader context. And so energy, you know, just focusing on, it's likely that the, the conversation about energy storage needs to happen in a number of different dockets, and, and they all kind of need to move ahead for us to create a healthy market. Sky, bear with me for a second. I, you know, I was a judge for this 51st state regulatory process that SEPA ran, mm-hmm. and the, um, the submissions were all over the map, but all really interesting. One of the things that I saw, though, was that storage was an enabler of this transition. It wasn't actually a category in and of itself. And I think when you read Green Tech Media, for instance, this week they talk about like Power IT, where you know they're really a demand management platform that needs storage to be able to provide a guaranteed level of service to their industrial and commercial customers, but that they're really doing through things through load management and shifting. I wonder whether storage is really at the forefront of any of these conversations or whether they're really an enabling technology to a broader goal that people are trying to reach on a regulatory standpoint. Um, I think I see it, it more in the latter as well as more of an enabling um, technology or tool in, in, the, in the toolkit of moving towards a more renewable energy and, and sort of distributed energy system. Um, there's no inherent value to storage all on its own. Um, it, its use in conjunction with the other technologies is is what makes it valuable. And and it, its value might increase as the technology 
the capability and the costs come down. But currently, it's it has only you know a sort of a limited role. But it's a really critical enabling role um, in certain markets, especially ones where we have you know the duck curve and and um, those kind of issues on on the table. But then why would but then why would a state replicate the SGIP rebate program, right? I mean, when you look at the Southern California Edison contracts that they signed with NRG. Um, with STEM, with a few other folks, you know, those are really specifically targeted in in jurisdictions within their territory that have um, congestion and and distribution substations that have issues, et cetera. I mean, I'm trying to figure out if 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 storage is really an enabling technology, wouldn't you actually want on a regulatory basis to promote more of the Southern California Edison type contracts than just a blanket rebate program that doesn't necessarily you know, go the dollars don't necessarily go into enabling what the state wants. Well, that, that's a good question. I think there's lots of different ways to think about what the the purpose of an incentive or a rebate is, and and what you're trying to do with it. And I think the the early stage ones are to start getting the market moving, and then if you set it up right, you don't necessarily limit its potential or how it can be used. But what California is looking at specifically in the context of SGIP is whether they should change the structure of that incentive to make sure that the energy storage is being used to accomplish the state's goals specifically with respect to renewable energy. Um, and when I think about energy storage, I think that that we need to focus on the the value proposition as a whole. And I think one of the reasons why we don't shouldn't initially focus exclusively on the, you know, the SCE procurement type of vehicle is that customer investment in energy storage and customers have the ability to use energy storage for ways that help them on their sites, for example, as emergency backup or other, other industrial uses. Um, and if we don't, if customers are making those investments or have reasons to make those investments on their own, but could also offer that some of the energy storage capability to offer grid benefits, then we're taking advantage of customer investment to help the grid overall. And if we just do it on the grid itself, we may be losing some of the you know already deployed technical potential out there. Now, there's definitely a role for both of them, but I see, like we have done with, with distributed solar, is making sure that if people are interested and capable of making some of this investment on their own, that we fully utilize those resources to, to help everybody and reduce ratepayer costs overall. Sky, there is a nut that I feel like we haven't yet cracked, and I would love your thoughts on that and this, and that is the states versus the bulk power system. So an energy storage facility that's on the distribution side, um, you know, in, in the organized markets at least, can um, be compensated for providing frequency regulation services to the grid. So say mm-hmm. they're doing that, and yet um, they're on the utility side and they're facing being charged demand charges um, because, of course, a, a battery needs to charge. Well, often charging, um, taking taking load off of the grid is just as much of a service as being to eject onto the grid. And yet, you know, if you are someone who's trying to install a battery and you're getting paid at wholesale rates and being charged at retail rates, you're not going to be able to make a business proposition with that. So I'm just wondering, like, what's how do we resolve that issue, that that sort of settlement issue of being on the distribution side and yet participating in the wholesale markets? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I'll, I'll say up front that I'm by no means an expert on the wholesale market side of things. Um, but I think what you're highlighting there is that one of the key regulatory hurdles we need to address 
us is how what is the rate structure for energy storage customers and that's going to allow them to participate and specifically what's the rate structure that's going to incentivize them to use their system in a way that works well for the rest of the grid um, and that getting in looking at how do we structure rates and how do we enable enable customers to deploy an energy system economically on their site as well as as for the grid is one of the things we have to start looking at and I think with with respect to frequency regulation in particular you know the, currently there's really only a market in PJM's market for that um, but we need to start looking at especially since not all states are part of ISOs and RTOs are there other ways for to create easy entry markets for the use of frequency regulation especially at the distribution level and frequency regulation is only one of the important services and there's a fairly limited need for that the you know the more energy storage systems we have the lower the price and value for the frequency regulation is going to be but distributed energy storage also has really great potential to help with voltage and that's a really local issue it's not done well on the transmission level or on the bulk system it's better done on the local system and has plays a particularly critical role in integration of high levels of distributed solar. Yeah, I mean, that's, you absolutely raised the right point. And the issue of what rate structure, it's not going to be monolithic because there are so many different value streams and you have to be able to account for all of them, right, to really make it work. Right. And that, well, I mean, that's really the critical thing here is that when, like, talking about all the different regulations that need to be touched on, there isn't until the price of the technology comes down really dramatically in very limited few cases is just one value stream going to be enough there have they have to be able to capture the variety of different benefits and and you know capitalize on those benefits to make it effective so i think i disagree on the price side I, you know i think battery storage is plenty cheap and i'm not sure it has to get cheaper even though it will i think that you know where where I think we were headed with this conversation is that the utilities are just very siloed. So the group that's asking for demand charges is a group that's radically you know, different than the group that's asking for resiliency benefits or flexibility around voltage or some of these other groups. And, and you know, I had an interesting meeting yesterday with, um, you know, C3 and, you know, they were explaining to me some of their business model practices. And, you know, what's amazing is the electric utility company has 12 or 13 different software systems that they've custom built none of which can actually exchange data with each other to create a clear picture of how to confer values to these assets. And so I think when you think about what we did in the solar business, what we did was not try to reduce the price of solar, even though we did do that. It was to increase the value of solar right. Um, you know, using net metering policies or other policies that, you know, we thought, you know, worked within the utility framework. And I think, you know, part of what's holding storage back, in my opinion, is that, you know, we do need to basically, I think, work on forcing electric utility companies to hire people like C3 and others to be able to put a software mask over all of their silos so that there is more data sharing around what these technologies really are worth to the utility. Theoretically, yes, but that's not cheap. Well, it, it actually is remarkably cheap, though. I mean, when you think about these software programs, it might be, I mean, I think the analysis that I saw from C3 the other day was something like for $200 million, something like Exelon, 
you know, in ComEd's territory, could unlock $2.7 billion worth of value. And so it, it really is cheap. What you're finding right now is that we're guessing in a static way as to what the value, because the utility likes to do things in averages. It's always an N plus one. But, you know, because of the Internet of Things, we're now at a point where we can actually dynamically collect all this data using sensors that are on the grid and tell people that in this particular node, a battery would be worth... X and in this yeah. particular node, a battery is worth Y. And right now, that data is absolutely not transparently available to developers. And that's something that we've actually been working on at um, for, on behalf of IREC across the country in interconnection proceedings and in these grid mod proceedings. Not just with respect to storage, but what I found find very interesting when we go in and start this conversation is. I think we have this assumption that utilities actually know a lot about their systems and know where the value is, but that's not true. The utilities don't know either. So we do need to make these investments in order to, for the utilities to take a look at their own system and say, okay, this is where we have an issue. This is where there's potential benefit. This is where storage or some other DER combination could enable us to you know, avoid a wires investment or other things. But right now, very few of the utilities across the country have anywhere close to that level of transparency into their own system, let alone being able to share that information with DER providers so that they can sort of offer to provide the services where they would be needed. And I think that's what some of the states are starting to push towards, but it, I think it's such a waste to think that we have this incredible, huge and, and highly effective um, electrical system, but we really don't actually know at any granular level what's going on with it. And we're not plan therefore we're not planning proactively about how to sort of cohesively make upgrades accordingly. So Sky, do you think it would help for utilities to be able to get rate recovery for those types of systems that allow them to to see more into more holistically into everything that's going on? Yeah, I do. I think that that's something that ratepayers could get a significant benefit from in the long run, like um, Jigger was, was citing, the potential economic savings from that could be considerable. But if we were to do it that way, we would want to make sure that we're actually realizing those benefits for ratepayers. Like the conversation about the smart grid and um, has gone in some states when, the, when they first deployed it, there wasn't really a method to make sure that we captured all the value of that information. And so if we did rate base the investments, we would want to make sure that there was a, a real concrete plan and a, and a mandate for the utilities to actually actually come up with some savings as a result of utilizing those. And I think that probably should also be part of a broader conversation like what's happening in the New York Rev proceeding about where the utilities are making money. I mean, I think all of this information transparency doesn't change the utilities incentives, um, if the way that they make money is by owning and operating physical infrastructure, and they're always going to be in competition with customer cited resources that could provide those same services potentially at a lower cost. And we, we're, we have to have that really difficult conversation in order to really change the market. There are some major parallels with the solar industry. Uh, clearly, when you consider designing new rate structures, uh, updating and expanding net metering, uh, coordinating safety standards. What can the storage industry learn from the solar industry? Because there's plenty of experience on all of these issues. Right. And I want to start with something we already just talked about in there, which is from the start, I think, focusing on the value proposition from the beginning and communicating in dollars and cents terms what 
the potential is for for distributed storage or or storage overall, and then looking at the regulatory frameworks from from that perspective, helping to make the the economic case about the value up front. And I think what we're seeing from the solar industry is, I don't think the solar industry missed that entirely, but what the most of the battle is right now in the net metering context and and more broadly is about is there really value and what's the value? If we could start with a common understanding about what the value is and and then make sure that the deployment is matching where that value comes from the beginning, it may be less as we, as we move forward. And I think on that on that same front, I wouldn't focus initially on incentives and, and storage mandates like California has moved ahead, although I think you know that's having a good effect on the market. I would focus on some of these foundational um regulatory policies that that I highlight in in the paper, because I think those are the ones that create more of a long-term market for energy storage and also help us deploy energy storage in the way that that helps everybody and has that sort of broader holistic goal. Sky Stanfield is an attorney with Keys, Fox, and Weedman. She represents the Interstate Renewable Energy Council, an organization focused on expanding uh, programs and policies that benefit consumers, policymakers, utilities, and the clean energy industry. She was in Atlanta, Georgia, and we really appreciate you being with us. Great conversation. It was great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right, it's time to uh, take a quick break and get a word in here about our sponsor, Renasola. Uh, Renasola has been manufacturing solar panels since 2008, and the company has emerged as a major distributor as well. So Renasola is offering a bundled equipment solution as part of its distribution business. And the company produces solar panels, inverters, and racking systems, and puts them all together to help you make your operations more efficient. Think about the savings in procurement and shipping costs you could realize by choosing Renasola's bundled offerings for residential systems. And think about the time you could save as well. Renasola has coast-to-coast warehouses across the U.S. and 40 global subsidiaries, and it also offers overnight shipping. So to find your local representative and to check out their products, go to renasola.us or give them a ring at 415-570-2647. And thanks again to Renasola for sponsoring this show. We've talked about the regulatory environment that companies are operating in. Let's turn to one of the actual companies that people can't stop talking about, Tesla. In a much-anticipated event, Tesla finally unveiled its new battery for homes and businesses called the Powerwall. It's a product that's been available in limited numbers behind the scenes for a while, both at the utility scale, through the commercial, and into residential uh, in small numbers. But it's now part of a very public stationary storage strategy. Tesla has a 10 kilowatt hour battery pack for $3,500 meant for backup in homes, and a 7 kilowatt hour unit meant for daily cycling with solar. It also has a 100 kilowatt hour unit for commercial industrial use, which it says comes in at a cost of $250 per kilowatt hour, a record low. Last week's release included not just the product, but numerous partnerships as well. And as Tesla declared, it is not just an automotive company anymore, it is an energy innovation company. Uh, of course, the, the company is one of many operating in this emerging space, but having Elon Musk's name behind it makes it more than an energy story. It's almost a cultural phenomenon. Uh, Jigger, what was your reaction? Was there anything that you learned from the public release that you didn't already know? Well, I mean, I did learn that Elon Musk could put on a show. 
We so all knew that. I thought, I thought the way that they orchestrated it and the launch and all that stuff was sort of very sort of Steve Jobs. And I, I thought that was great. Um, I do think yeah, that, I mean, it's all know, about creating a desirable product, this sleek product with a lot of hype around it. It's a formula. Yeah. And as my listener, as our listeners know, I mean, you know, I'm not um, like, I mean, I get very technical about a lot of this stuff. And you can imagine a lot of my friends, frankly, just don't care. Um, I got a ton of calls from friends of mine who were investment bankers or others who generally don't care to hear about me go on and on about the grid or solar. And they were genuinely interested in learning about exactly what this announcement means. And so from that perspective, I think we drew in a lot of people who are generally not following the day-to-day back and forth on electricity into our space, which is a good thing because, I mean, all of the battery entrepreneurs, all of the battery manufacturers in the world are now getting a greater audience for their products uh, and the differentiation. I mean, one, one point that I would make, though, is that Tom Randall did a fantastic piece in um, Bloomberg Business, which basically debunked the technology, though, pretty well, which was, you know, Solar City is saying the technology is only made to go through 50 charging cycles a year which means it's not really made for everyday use. Um, they were also saying, you know, that the, the Solar City person basically said that it doesn't make a lot of financials um, sense right now because of net metering, but, um, but it's a good thing for people who, you know, care about these things. So, you know, it's, it, it really is more about power than it is about energy. So, I mean, I think that there's a lot of um, technical specs that we can get into here. But all in all, this was like a billion dollars of free advertising for the battery industry. Well, I would just like to say, um, I did talk to the folks at Tesla, This and uh, and we've known them and talked to them for a long time. This isn't just a show and smoke and mirrors. They've been testing this for a long time. They've been working on these products for a long time. They used a lot of that S-chip funding to do that. Um, and what um, what they've told me is that this power wall, the seven kilowatt hour daily cycling, they said that's their international pack. That's for Germany and Australia. It's for post net metering. It'll work in Hawaii and Europe. But if when you have net metering, this doesn't make any sense. And and they are completely ready to admit this. They said this is for the next generation. And and th- what they're focused on now are those markets where you know there isn't any net metering. And and Germany and Australia make a lot of sense to them. So I think that you know part of it is the hype was around. Oh, everybody's going to need to get one of these. Well. That was a, that's not really the market they're going after right now. There's certainly going to be some folks who want standby uh, generation and are willing to, you know, the people in the Northeast are willing to pay $3,500. That is like, seems like a pretty good deal. Um, but that really what they're looking for um, with the power wall, with the home system is something international. Yeah, I was surprised at the number of people that signed up to get a power wall. And they, the uh, Tesla announced its quarterly earnings the other day, and they said they got more than 40,000 leads in the first few days. Many of those, uh, most of the vast majority of those in the residential space. Um, and I was talking to Matteo Jaramillo, who is the director of Tesla's powertrain business. And I presume, Catherine, you were talking to him as well. Yeah. And, yep. you know, he said that the, really th- there's a huge opportunity. There are a lot of customers that are demanding backup power, particularly on the East Coast after Sandy. Um, and they're hearing that from solar installers. And it's a big enough demand that they really think they can build their business off of this backup power unit for many years to come. And then eventually transition into the grid services battery 
after you know in a, in that post net metering environment and and I was actually really surprised at the number of consumers that he said were interested in in backup well but I don't the, know that but I'm I, surprised well a huge market though that they're looking at is really direct energy sales to utilities like this partnership with green mountain power so having energy retailers in the deregulated markets or utilities in the regulated markets they're really interested in buying storage from these guys on the utility scale so i think that um, that it's more than just the power wall and backup power. Yeah, I, I guess I was surprised at the the high numbers, Jigger. Not necessarily that people are interested in backup power. Forty thousand applications uh, leads in three days is a lot. Yeah, but I, I mean, I think that I mean, at least for me, I think people have been interested in battery storage for a very long time. You know, I think that I mean, you see that every time there's a hurricane that approaches Washington D.C., there's forty thousand diesel generators sold. Um, and so there's certainly people who are interested in um, a, pa- a packaged uh, product solution. And so, look, I think what Tesla announced was great, was was groundbreaking and game changing. So I'm not taking anything away from them, but I also don't think that they separated themselves from the rest of the pack. I think that the technologies that are coming out in the lithium-ion space broadly, and all of their competitors are right there with them on the cost structure, on the you know productizing their offering, on all of those pieces. And so I, I just think that you know Tesla has given the entire industry a billion dollars of free press. I think that's totally true. I talked to another um, battery manufacturer last week uh, that has a different chemistry, and they sell a lot of batteries, and they said this was great. They said Tesla's the first out, lowers the risk for all of us. What about that $250 per kilowatt hour number for the commercial industrial system, Jigger? That's pretty low. Is uh, that a surprising price for you? No, I think it's right in line with what everyone else we're working with is at. I mean, pretty much everyone that we're working with is at like 350 a kilowatt hour this year, and I think headed towards $250 a kilowatt hour next year. Um, you know, because that price doesn't include the inverter, it doesn't include markups, it doesn't include installation. Um, and so, you know, right now you're be able to get all in, you know, battery packages installed for like $800,000 a megawatt. Um, now that's not for a lot of energy. It's only for power applications like frequency regulations. So that's, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes of storage. But, um, but I think that's right in line with where everyone else is. It's a little bit better than where everyone else is, but it's, you know, it's not like, it's not like first solar that was selling solar panels for $2 a watt when everyone else was selling for 360 a watt back in 2006, 2007. Um, I think this is good news all the way around. I just think that, like, you know, I think that when they made the presentation, a lot of the news coming out of it was this is a game changer. Tesla's by itself. Everyone else is sort of like, you know, been left in the dust. And I just don't think that's the case. I think the whole industry is actually, you know, moving forward um, with the same speed, which is a good thing. You know, the, the, the closest parallel that I can think of here is the Nest thermostat. And, and I, I'm stealing from editor in chief Eric Wessoff here. But there is a sexiness to this product. and uh, a brand recognition behind Tesla that makes it unique. Beyond the actual performance itself, it seems like Tesla does have a brand advantage here and a sleekness to its product that makes it unique. A hundred percent. I mean, no question. I mean, you know, being involved with Tesla and I mean, also just like if you're a customer, you know, you definitely want to brag that you have a Tesla battery in your garage instead of a Sonnen battery. Yeah, and if you think about the utility space, it's like not branded. And Tesla is a brand and it brings all these services. So, you know, they they were kind of 
the first to be able to brand something that nobody else really has really been able to do. Let's uh, switch gears from battery storage now and look at fracking, rather the, the byproduct of fracking, wastewater. Fracking operations for oil pull up 25 billion gallons of water per year, around seven barrels of water for every barrel of oil. And that water is pumped back underground to force more oil upward, but it's uh, expensive to deal with. Can it become an asset, though, one that helps drillers clean up their operations even just a little bit? Uh, We will soon find out, perhaps. Researchers at the the University of North Dakota and engineers at Continental Resources are testing a 250-kilowatt capacity generator that will use the hot water to generate geothermal electricity. Uh, The DOE has helped fund some other test projects in in the past. Um, Potentially a good way for the geothermal industry to incrementally grow the market while things are slow. But of course, they've been talking about this for years. A lot of companies have uh, tested these technologies and have not really found good economics. Uh, Jigger, you've been following this for more than a decade is this an opportunity at all for the geothermal guys or for the oil drillers for that matter? So I first got a pitch in this area in 1999 when I was at BP. Um, and, you know, and it hasn't stopped since. I think people have long said, look, if somebody's already paid for drilling the well, why not, you know, sort of use that um, sunk cost, if you were, to our advantage. You know, and I, I emailed, um, none of those, by the way, panned out. I think all of those companies raised money and then all of them went out of business. But um, I had talked to Aaron Mandel at um, Alterock about it. And he said, well, it's technically feasible and it could be interesting for oil and gas companies to reduce their sort of on-site usage. From a strict generation perspective, it's sort of a challenging niche market because most of the produced water is in undesirable locations often with like no transmission. It's highly unreliable. You get like peaks during the injection that tails off over the life of the well. And it's mostly low temperatures for, you know, sort of compared to other geothermal reservoirs. So if someone created a package like um, organic Rankin cycle type thing in a box, then maybe it would work. But in general, you know, he thinks it's, you know, not really something he's going to go after. Yeah, but even those really haven't worked. You know, you mentioned the organic Rankin cycle technology. There's the binary cycle. They, they use a, a working fluid, you know, and run a turbine to generate electricity. The problem is that, like, the oil and gas boreholes are pretty skinny. So when you bring water up, it causes a lot of friction. The flow rates drop and the temperature of the water decreases, and sometimes the water can actually be cooler than the air temperature when it's finally brought up to the surface. So that's a major technical problem. And then, of course, uh, for many of these oil and gas operations, electricity prices haven't been high enough for them to want to invest in this technology. So you have, and then, you know, you mentioned a lot of these companies not raising financing or just dropping off the map. A lot of them started talking about this again in between 2007 and 2010, and they just couldn't get financing for projects after the financial crisis. So a number of technical and financial challenges. Well, with the price of oil, these folks are trying everything they can to try to save money. It just seems like this particular uh, way to go is is seems very inefficient and very expensive. And it, and it strikes me that just capturing methane would save them a lot more than than trying this geothermal play. Definitely. That's exactly right. That's what a lot of people are doing is capturing methane, cleaning it up, and then converting their diesel generators that they're using for on-site power into natural gas generators. 
Yeah, just methane emissions from natural gas operations in the U.S. in 2012 or 2013 were worth $30 billion. So if you took all that methane released, uh, a country producing that much would rank seventh in the world in production. So methane is capturing is certainly a much better much better prospect. Um, well, and in, in better news, I mean, Ormat closed $442 million recently and spun out a yield co. So, I mean, I think that's really good news for the geothermal industry, probably better than this. I do think, though, that the oil industry is trying to find other revenue streams. Um, I mean, just having recently um, been at a conference with a lot of oil and gas folks, they're they're really hurting. They're laying off a lot of people, and I think they're trying to squeeze any savings they can out of their process. Okay. That's the end, folks. Uh, let's tell you something you don't know. And Catherine, you're up first this week. Thanks. Well, uh, you all may remember last week I was waiting with bated breath on the decision on Order 745, and the Supreme Court did on Monday. Uh, we heard that the Supreme Court will hear the appeal to the circuit court decision on Order 745, which is um, demand response in the energy markets at full LMP, so the full price of generation. Um, and there's an issue of jurisdiction and, and an issue of compensation. But but by hearing the appeal, at least the markets are going to be stable until the decision is made. Nothing will change in the organized markets. We expect it to be, you know, they start the first Monday in October, so they'll be hearing oral arguments and then making a decision probably by next summer. So it'll be another year, but at least things will stay stable. And the fear was, of course, that if it were left, um, if Order 745 were vacated, it would have a huge bleed over effect into the capacity markets and every other type of technology. So are you going to be standing outside the Supreme Supreme Court with a sign? Yes. <laughs> Save Order 745. <laughs> Absolutely. You'll have to come up with a good slogan for that one. Yeah, I don't know. It's tough. Jigger, what's your story this week? Well, so I have two again. Um, yesterday, the Hawaii legislature voted to go to 100% renewable energy in Hawaii. So I think that's a big, big deal. Um, and the other one was that um, the state of New York has finally put up a website explaining to the public what the REV proceeding, reforming the energy vision proceeding is. So it's newyork.gov slash REV for New York. Um, and um, just, you know, really well done website. So for those of you who have heard of us talking about the New York REV but have no idea what it means, um, there's finally a website for that. <laughs> I'm happy just because I spend so much time scrolling through all those daggone filings, and it'll be nice to have one place. In fairness, a lot of the stakeholders in the process are still trying to figure out what exactly, exactly. it means. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So after my mention of solar in The Walking Dead a few episodes back, I got to talking with Shale Khan about all the best references to solar in movies, in pop culture, in TV. And I have a working list started. And upon doing research, I realized actually that a couple years back, the folks at Mosaic wrote a piece on this on their blog. But our list is different so far. I don't want to give it away yet, but I'd love to hear suggestions from listeners on uh, solar references or visuals of solar in any TV show, in a movie you've seen, in a music video, in anything. Uh, if you've got a good one, shoot a note at, to podcasts at greentechmedia.com, and I'm eager to know what people come up with. And that is all for the show this week. Mentions of solar and pop culture aside, feel free to reach out about things you hear in this show. We do take into account what our listeners tell us or ask us. The email again is podcasts at greentechmedia.com. 
Thank you to Renesola for sponsoring this show. Go to renesola.us for more on the company's clean energy products and distribution services. And go over to greentechmedia.com slash podcast for all our back episodes and to subscribe to the show if you don't already. Jigger, have a wonderful week and weekend. Thanks. Talk to you later, Catherine. You as well. Yes, everybody hug someone's mom this weekend. It's Mother's Day. Oh, that's right. Happy Mother's Day. With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week. Thank you.